Well, Father, what better day for us to think about the glory of biblical love than on a day that we share the Lord's table together. And so we come, Father, once again to 1 Corinthians 13, asking you to teach us from these printed words of yours what it means to love as Christ loved, and then to participate in the table of the Lord by which we are reminded of the glorious, agonizing love that you poured out on us in Jesus Christ, that he willingly paid for us. Where would we be if you had not loved us? Where would we be? Oh, Father, enlarge our hearts now to understand the glory of Christ's sacrifice, his death, his righteousness, his resurrection, his intercession for us before the Father now as we take part in the Lord's table. And even before that, Father, I pray that you would remind us of how deep your love is in your forgiveness and in your call for us to be a forgiving people, to demonstrate your love by loving one another as you have loved us in all forgiveness. And Father, I pray that you change us because of it, we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is where we are still. We've been learning about biblical love, and there is much to learn. On January 8th, 1956, 56, a news story broke that stunned the whole English-speaking world. Five young men serving as missionaries in Ecuador had been speared to death by a savage Indian tribe that had been trying, that these young men had been trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ed McCulley, Roger Yodarian, Peter Fleming, Nate Saint, and most notably, perhaps, Jim Elliott, who were all determined to locate the Waldani tribe in the thick jungles of Ecuador for the purpose of telling them about the Savior. After Nate, Nate Saint one day, uh, seemingly by accident, spotted the Waldani tribe from his airplane, and preparations began to, to go underway for approaching them, meeting with them, and talking with them about the gospel. And this they did with great excitement. And their excitement grew at the prospect of meeting these people for whom Christ had died face to face. And it was coming a reality for which they were overjoyed. Eventually, after Nate Saint found the place, he also found a beach on which to land. They affectionately referred to it as Palm Beach. They landed there several times. A little sandbar on the Karuri River. They did, in fact, make contact with some of these native people. One day, a small group of Waldani approached them, two women, as I remember, and one man who they affectionately named George. Some gifts were exchanged. Some communication was attempted. 
George was enamored with the airplane, and they invited him to take a ride, which amazingly he agreed to. Imagine a Stone Age tribesman walks out of the woods and finds an airplane, climbs in it, and is able, for the first time in any of his tribal history, is able to see his house from the sky. Gifts were exchanged, smiles shared, and everything seemed well. They took some amazing film footage that you can see, I believe, online of that event. But on the morning of January 8th, a larger group of Waldani warriors arrived on the beach, not with presents, but with spears. It became evident this was not to be a friendly encounter. The missionaries had long since resolved that if they were ever attacked, they would not take life in order to save their own. They did have a gun. They refused to use it. And by the time the encounter was over, all five missionaries were dead. And this became one of the truly most amazing missionary tales of the 20th century. A few years before his death, Jim Elliott had written in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This became the rallying cry of hundreds upon hundreds of young men and women all around the world who, as a result of the story of Jim Elliott and what became known as the Ecuador Five, their story inspired thousands, tens of thousands of young people, especially college-age young people, to give their lives for the cause of the gospel in every region of the globe. Their testimony also became the impetus for giving millions and millions and millions of dollars to support the work of the Great Commission worldwide. That's all amazing. It's all amazing. But the truly amazing thing is what happened next. Within three years... Something happened that just was shocking and so unexpected that even the Christian world is rocked by it when we are reminded. Three years after Elizabeth Elliot's husband was killed and um, Nate Saint was killed, his sister her name escapes me. Rachel. Rachel Saint. Rachel and Elizabeth left the comfort of their home on the mission field, on the mission, at the mission compound, and moved in to the village of the Waldani people. They had made a contact. Rachel was learning the language through this woman who had escaped from her people during the spearings of earlier years was teaching Rachel Saint the language of the people. They took what language they knew and their children and walked through the jungle and came to this tribe and had houses built and lived among them. The result of that was that many of these tribal people came to know Christ. A church was established 
The New Testament was translated into the Waldani language. And eventually, some of the men who murdered Jim Elliott and his compadres that day actually became the spiritual leaders in that village who would baptize the children of the men whom they had killed. Now that's amazing. Women, what if you were that wife? What if you were that wife? What if that had been your husband? What happened in the hearts of Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint that empowered them to walk into the jungle and become instruments in the Redeemer's hand to bring the gospel to the very people who had shattered their homes? That's a good question. And you know what the answer is? The answer is one word, love. Love for God that propelled them into uncommon, powerful love for people. It was love. Love is the only thing in the universe that has the power to energize people to do what these women did. It's love. This is what love is. Love for God expressed in love for people. How can this kind of love be described? How do we describe this kind of love? Paul does it for us. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. The very last statement, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. As we continue to work our way through 1 Corinthians 13, and this is what we come up against. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, if you haven't experienced conviction yet in this study of 1 Corinthians 12, then maybe today will be your day. Because this applies to every one of us. You see, it's easy to say the words, I love you. Love you, man. Love you. That's easy. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. And just because you say I love you doesn't mean that you actually do love that person any more than saying you're the Queen of England proves that you're royal. You're not. You can call yourself a bologna sandwich. It doesn't make you one. The real test of love, the real test of whether or not we're really living out the great commandment is the test of 1 Corinthians 13. And the real test... The real test is, are you willing to give to others, no matter who they are or what they've done to you, whatever it is that you have that they need, because God wants you to? Are you willing to do that? Don't say, I love you. Don't tell people you love someone if you're not willing to give what they need that you have, because God wants you to. That's the real test. In this case, the test of love is the test of whether you are willing to not allow your right to justice keep you from meeting the needs of someone who has done you wrong. Let me say that again. The test here at the end of verse 5 is this. Are you willing to not allow your right to justice keep you from meeting the needs of someone who has done you wrong? The Greek word here for wrong suffered 
is kakas. Somehow seems appropriate. Sometimes translated evil or malice. The verb in this phrase, which is translated take into account, comes from the word lagizomai, which literally means to keep a list or to calculate. It's a word used um, to describe what a bookkeeper or an accountant does. An accountant keeps lists, keeps records, what is spent and what is owed. And so it is in the spiritual world, the moral world. Because in a sense, all of us are by nature moral accountants. We all tend to keep records of wrongs done to us. We're quick to forgive the wrongs that we do to other people. Forgive ourselves. But we're slow to even forget or to put out of mind the wrongs that other people have committed against us. We tend to keep track of who hurt us and how much it cost, and when, and all the details associated with it. When we see someone who's done us wrong, or when we hear their name, our minds immediately fly to the accounting file, where all of that person's wrongs, their debts, are tallied up. But that's not love. That's not love. I can say I love you all day long. But if in my heart I keep a secret record of the ways that you have wronged me, my declaration of love is nothing but a hypocritical fiction. It's just words. It's not love. Years ago I heard Dr. Wayne Mack describe a time when a woman came to his office, um, one in counsel because her marriage was falling apart, and she um, presented to Dr. Mack a a one-and-a-half or two-inch thick file that she flopped down on the desk, and he said, what's that? And he said, she said, um, these are all the reasons why I think I have a right to divorce my husband. This is a list of sins that he has committed against me over the past 10 years. And I thought, that's crazy. I mean, that may have happened to Dr. Wayne Mack, but that would never happen in my ministry. One day, I had a woman come in for counsel from outside the church wanted to divorce her husband. Um, After a brief greeting and whatever, she reached down into her bag, pulled out a big, one of those three-inch thick, three-ring binders, and flopped it on the desk. And I said, what is that? I mean, as if I didn't know. And she said, evidence. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I said, put it away. Let's talk about your heart. Because that's what you need to work on. If you're a child of God, this is so far out of bounds, it's scary. Now, that may be an extreme case, you think, but the reality is, apart from the divine work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we all keep records of wrong. We're just not so bold as to write it all down. And you probably don't need to write it all down. You just remember it in color, in specific detail of how people have wronged you. And you know what? To one degree or another, we all do that. That's why the Apostle Paul had to write this. He's writing to a real problem. He's writing to real people with this real issue. We all have the propensity toward resentment and bitterness. 
and keeping records of how we have been wronged by others. All of us have a history of resentment. All of us are capable of engaging in the most insidious forms of, of unlove. Unlove. But God hates resent, resentment. He hates a resentful spirit. Consider the following scriptures. Romans 12, 17. Never pay back evil for evil. Not even in your mind. Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge. Say, oh, I never really have. But if you were honest in your mind, you've murdered them. Ephesians 4.26, never let the sun go down on your anger. How about this? Ephesians 4.31, listen to this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Rather, be kind to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ has also forgiven you. Alexander Strzok warns, he says this, if we refuse to let go of emotional hurts, if we enjoy nursing old wounds, if we feel compelled to get even with our enemies, we will be devoured by bitterness and unforgiveness. We will be miserable examples and ineffective leaders for Christ. You want to have a ministry? You want to have a, an impact on the people around you? If you're bitter, if you're resentful, if you're keeping track of wrongs suffered, your ministry's over from the beginning. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. Remember that? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. You're a big nothing, no matter how gifted you are, if you can't love. Being hurt by others is actually a biblical perspective. Being hurt by another person is actually, should be viewed by us as an opportunity to practice the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And to care for your enemy and heaping burning coals on his head and overcoming evil with good. It's an opportunity to suffer for the Lord's sake and to imitate God's forgiving love. On the day the wives of the five missionaries in Ecuador were told that their, how their husbands died, a reporter happened to be there. And he took notes and wrote these words. The widows believed that their husband's death was not the meaningless tragedy it appeared to many. No thoughts of reve revenge crossed their minds. On the contrary, they felt with an increased sense of urgency, the need to bring their message of love and redemption to the Alcas. The Waldanis were called Alka. I think Alka meant savage. And they were. They were murderous savages. Elizabeth Elliot later wrote these words. It gives me much more personal desire to reach them. The fact that her husband was killed. The fact that Jesus Christ died for all makes me interested in the salvation of all, but the fact that Jim loved and died for the Alcas intensifies my love for them. And what kind of love is she talking about? You think her heart went pitter-patter and she felt all warm and fuzzy when she thought of the men who killed her husband? No. 
I suspect she felt the same kind of love that Jesus felt for us when he was in the garden sweating great drops of blood. That's true love. Beloved, before we can take part in the Lord's table this morning, I'm concerned that there are wives here who are embittered against their husbands over past hurts and blatant failures to love. And I'm concerned that there are men in our midst who are embittered against their wives because they feel like they've been disrespected and judged far too many times. There are children who are embittered against your parents because of perceived hypocrisy in the home. In fact, truth be known, whether you're in one of these three categories or something else, the reality is you're keeping record of past sin. In your heart, you want them to pay. You feel as if they are indebted to you. You want your pound of flesh, and by golly, you're going to get it before any kind of relationship can be restored. Can I just put that in perspective? That's wicked. That's evil. If you're a Christian, you've been forgiven 10,000 times more than you will ever have to forgive. It's time to let it go. It's time to forgive. It's time to stop the resentment and the bitterness that goes with it. It's time to stop keeping a record of wrongs. It's time to repent of your own sin against the Lord and against the one who has wronged you. It's time to begin obeying the great commandment. It's time to love. You say, what about Matthew chapter 18? The whole thing about how to confront sin. I'm not saying ignore that or neglect that. Obviously, you need to bring other texts to bear on this as well. But what we're really talking about here is your heart. You may not be sinning outwardly, but in your heart, you are demanding a pound of flesh. Even if you are demanding, before I can demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit to that person, before I do that, i gotta, I got to see some contrition. Really? The Apostle Paul said, against such things there is no law relative to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there is never a time when you, as a child of God, should withhold the fruit of the Spirit from another person. God is wanting to produce that in their lives. Listen, if, if Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint were unwilling to do that, there would be no story. And those young people never would have gone. The power is in the love. The power is in making the hard decisions to simply forgive. Yes, forgive biblically, but if the other person is unwilling to confess, you must forgive from the heart anyway. Anyway. Otherwise, you are held hostage. And you just can't let that happen. Will it be easy? No. No. Was Jesus' experience in the garden before he went to the cross easy? Are you kidding? No. It will be hard. And in your heart, you're going to want justice because it would be just to get justice. You want payment. Payment would be just. And perhaps even asking for forgiveness. You want them to come and say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? question is, how bad do you want that? Are you willing to withhold love from that person? 
Are you with, willing to withhold your ministry, giving that person whatever it is that you have that they need because God wants you to until they do what God calls them to do? Forget about what God calls them to do. What is God calling you to do? If that person never changes, if they never repent, what does God want you to do? That's the issue. That's the issue. Will it be easy? No. But isn't that the point? Isn't that the power of love? And isn't that the message of the gospel for us? If we are going to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, we've got to learn this. I was so affected this week by Dietrich Bonhoeffer as I was talking with someone else about a situation in their life. I've been reading one of his books, and it occurred to me from his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, uh, the only statement I remember from that book is this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Jesus said it like this. Whoever, is, whoever desires to follow me must deny himself daily, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will find it. Beloved, sometimes you just got to die to your desire for justice, for revenge, for righteousness to be brought to bear upon the person who has harmed you. That's what love is. That's what love is. We die to our own rights. We die to our own privileges. We die to our own agenda and our own interests. We die to self-worship and the insistence that we get our own way. You may say, that's crazy. That's not natural. Absolutely. You'd be right. It's not natural. It's not even normal. Not in this world. But it's biblical. And it's love. It is biblical love. Biblical love is a powerful thing. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are capable of doing what seems to the world to be impossible. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your God. I think so often the unbelievers around us are not propelled to glorify God because they look at us and they go, he's just a normal guy. He ain't anything special there. That's just a normal lady. She's just like the rest of us. Talks like us. She dresses like us. She acts like us. She may be a little better. She's kind of a churchy kid. The real test is what happens when someone wrongs you? What happens when someone does you wrong? You say, this is, this is really, really, really a high standard. You bet it is. And yet, by God's grace, according to the power of his spirit, the Holy Spirit res resident with inside of you makes you and I capable of saying these words. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that means I can forgive even before forgiveness is offered. I can die to self even though my soul rages within me. 
I can honor Christ by the way I respond to hurt. You want to make an impact on your world? Do you really want to make a mark on the lives of the people who are closest to you? And my advice is the same. Learn to love. Learn to love. Learn to love the people around you. Learn to love the people who are closest to you, who hurt you. And especially this, our text for today reminds us that to love is to resolve not to keep a record of how others have wronged you, no matter how badly it hurts. No matter how badly it hurts. And the biggest help I get to do that is to remember Jesus' words. Take up your cross. Take up your cross. You do not live to be worshipped. And you are not going to be paid your due. At the end of the day, you should look at your master and say, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done what I've been commanded to do. I have no rights. I have no rights. And I understand that when Jesus called me, he bid me, come and die. Oh, beloved, there's freedom. There is such freedom there. I believe this is exactly what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when they were having lawsuits against one another. And he said, why not just rather be wronged? Just let it go. Why not rather just die to that? You don't need that money. God has promised he will provide all your needs according to his riches and glory. Let it go and love that person. Serve them. Bless them. Do good to them who persecute you, Jesus said. For by this you will show the world what God is like. This is the kind of love that brings reconciliation and freedom where there was once war. And this is the kind of love that your Savior, the Lord Jesus, deserves. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for the hard truths of the Bible. And this is certainly one of them. It's hard. It's hard to love one another as we should. I praise you for the love in this church. I've said it before, Father, this is the most loving church I've ever been a part of. And your people are so quick to confess sin and to reconcile with one another and not hold grudges, but to address every difficult conflict and even the easy ones in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. I praise you for that. I believe that's the secret to the growth and the unity of this church. It's not our programs. It's not our leadership. It's the Holy Spirit working love in your people, biblical, Christ-honoring love. And so I pray, Father, that you would just work this out in our hearts, Squeeze it into every cranny of our lives, every aspect of who we are at the core of our being. Make us a loving people, a biblically loving people, for your glory, for the unity of your church, and for our own great joy, we pray in Jesus' name.